As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, here with me today to discuss the U.S. Women's National Team's third straight victory at the CONCACAF W Championship is a man who always gets past Canada, even if it's via penalty kicks. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hi, Taylor. Yes, I do. I do my absolute best to sneak past Canada. I dodge all the maple syrup they're throwing at me. I dodge all of the just politeness that they're trying to toss my way. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm coming to beat you. (laughs) Joe, that's some solid yes-anding by you. Uh, Way to start the show. Uh, As I said in the introduction, we're here to talk about the U.S. Women's National Team. They defeated Canada 1-0 on Monday night to win the CONCACAFW Championship with the win. The U.S. also secured a berth at the 2024 Paris Olympics. We'll talk at least a little bit about Canada as well in this episode. They will take on Jamaica in September 2023 for another chance to qualify for those 2024 Olympics. For the United States, it was a successful tournament and a strange tournament, I would say, simultaneously. Uh, It's a strange thing to say about the U.S. winning five out of five games, scoring 13 goals, conceding none. But even head coach Vlatko Antonovsky acknowledged that this team uh, is not yet ready for the World Cup, which is, I guess, scheduled to kick off literally one year from now. So we will assume between now and then they will get ready. Uh, the goal for today's show is to figure out what's working, what needs some fine-tuning ahead of that World Cup next summer. First, let's spend some time on that final, Joe, uh, which the U.S. won courtesy of the Alex Morgan penalty in the second half. This is rough. This was, for Canada, the roughly the same team that knocked the U.S. out of the Olympics. So, uh, Joe, are you pleased with the revenge game of sorts? I think you have to be. I'm, I'm not saying it was a perfect performance from the U.S. We'll get into all the, the stuff that we want to talk about on, on that end later on. But as far as positives, there's a ton of positive to take away from this game and really from this tournament from the U.S. Women's National Team. They dominated Canada. There were a few issues defensively. Taylor, I saw you tweet about this from Sofia Huerta. There were yeah. some, some issues in the back, but even those moments didn't really turn into super big chances for Canada. The U.S. gave up shots but they were almost always low percentage shots. It was pretty much just Prince driving at Huerta 1v1 on the Canada's left, the U.S.'s right, and, and beating her repeatedly in the opening 15 minutes. But really, 
the U.S. was the better team in this game. They didn't finish all their chances. That stuff happens. I'm not really bothered about bothered about that at all. But I, I think this game was another illustration of how dangerous the U.S. can be in open space. And, and Canada did give them that open space. Before this game, I wrote as one of the three things I was watching for, I, I wrote about would this be a chance for the U.S. to press because Canada had dominated possession in their games just like the U.S. had. And we know that they're the closest team to the U.S. in terms of talent in this region. And it was a little more open. U.S. still had a lot of the ball, but Canada would drive forward. The U.S. would sit back a little deeper with an eye to attacking on the break. And I don't think they executed a lot of those transition attacks all that well, but they did enough, right? Rose Lavelle draws a penalty in the box. It was a penalty. The U.S. get that penalty. Alex Morgan scores. She is brilliant, I thought, in the game against Canada on Monday night. I thought she was excellent. I thought she'd been excellent by and large in this whole tournament. There is so much attacking depth in this group. There is so much quality. Though I don't think the U.S. has... has fully figured out how to maximize that quality just yet, you can still see with the depth and, and just the, the immense talent in this team, they are incredibly difficult to stop. And it just continues to make me think, what could they be if they figured out a way to fire on all cylinders? That's not a question for this segment maybe of the show. But man, I, I think overall credit to this team, credit to Vlako Andonovsky for giving different players a run and earning them and, and getting them some valuable tournament experience. All of that stuff is important, and I think in that way, the U.S. did check off all of their primary boxes in this tournament. Joe, have you seen the quote-unquote controversy from the Canadian side or from a few Canadian sure. uh, fans that Rose Lavelle took a dive for that penalty? Because uh, I don't want to spend too much time on that one. <laughs> to me, she's clipped, she goes down, it's a definite penalty. It's an unnecessary penalty, she's going away from goal, but still very much a penalty. Curious if you have thoughts on that one. Yeah, I, I think it's a penalty, too. I have a hard time seeing it the other way around. I sympathize with Canada, though, yeah. thinking about how they, they were still hanging on in that game, and they had made a bunch of changes before that incident in the box, and, and I, they had, before the U.S. had any subs on the field, they had all five. They were going for it and trying to get something and to use that fresh energy to get something and, and at least push this game into extra time and then see what happens from there. It's unfortunate you never want to lose a game like that, but for me, that that is definitely a penalty. We will definitely talk about some substitutions or lack thereof as we keep going in this game. But first, Joe, when we saw the lineup, it was Alyssa Nair in goal. We had Emily Fox and Sofia Huerta, the aforementioned, uh, as your fullbacks with Becky Sauerbrunn and Lana Cook in the middle. Then your, I guess, sort of usual midfield three, although in this tournament it's varied, as you said. Uh, Lindsey Horan, Andy Sullivan, Rose Lavelle, Mal Pugh, Alex Morgan, Sophia Smith up top. Any concerns or consternation from you when you first saw that lineup? Not really, right? I mean, it's it's hard to take a ton of issue with any of these choices. There were some some decisions that I, I, it's difficult to say without being around the team, but some things from watching this group that I probably would have done a little differently. I don't know what exactly is going on with the goalkeeper rotation. We get Alyssa Nair in this game after she started one game previously in this tournament and one of the two uh, w championship friendlies so she ended up playing three games and and casey murphy ended up playing four and i don't fully understand what the rotation was about there or, or why some of those decisions were made it didn't end up making one lick of difference and I, it probably never was going to really for this u.s team i i was really tempted by naomi gurma getting into this lineup the idea of her getting into this lineup after how confident and, and mobile and technical she looked earlier on in this tournament on the ball capable in transition defensively I really liked her it's no surprise that Becky Sauerbrunn starts over her in this game she is still center back number one on Black Kwandanovsky's depth chart as far as I'm concerned I think that is going to start changing Alana Cook didn't say that after the match talking to Jenny Chu on the sidelines but she said basically something to the effect of you know I'm trying to learn 
everything I can from Becky while we still have her. And, and that's just a yeah. logical way to think about this, right? Becky Sauerbrunn's 37. She has more caps than I can count. She will at some point not be involved in this team. I was thinking maybe this would be a good chance to start transitioning her out of that lineup, but Vlaco clearly didn't think so, and I think that's totally fine. Otherwise, it pretty much picks itself. We both love Ashley Sanchez in midfield, but seeing Lindsey Horan there as one of those number eights next to Rose Lavelle is no surprise. And then that front line, Alex Morgan in the middle, she's the only true number nine left in this squad. You have Sophia Smith on the right, Mallory Pugh on the left. Vlatko said before this tournament that those were going to be his starting wingers, and he stayed true to that. He did. He did very much. I saw some speculation that Becky Sauerbrunn was like happy to spend the summer relaxing on the sidelines. Then uh, Abby Dahlkemper can't go. Tina Davidson gets injured. So in comes Becky Sauerbrunn. But I agree with you. I think we will start seeing her transitioned yeah. maybe out of this lineup or, or less regularly feature as a starter. And I, I think before reading a, a little bit about that would have felt like, no, she's in there as long as she wants to. If she wants to play until she's 45, keep Becky Sauerbrunn in the starting lineup. But if she is okay with moving on, I think that is probably the, the time to start making that change. But it is also indicative of the problems that Vlatko faces. If I have that level of loyalty to Becky Sauerbrunn, I would assume people who are actually related to U.S. soccer have a, a much harder time sort of figuring out how to move on from some of these veteran players if that's what we want to do. Joe, on the flip side, who of the younger contingent of the players with maybe fewer than 50 caps, uh, <laughs> who would you say sort of stood out to you in this game against Canada? Taylor, it's so interesting how we view – this yep. really stuck out to me, and I will answer your question. It's so interesting to me how we view inexperience yeah. when we cover this particular team versus the U.S. men's national team. Mm -hmm. And we don't always need to be making those comparisons, but this is a valid one, I think. You can see just how dominant and how tested this U.S. women's team is when you look at the number of caps they have relative to all of the players that had never seen World Cup qualifying before for the men over the last year or so. It's, it's a totally different ballgame. You have players like Sofia Huerta being considered inexperienced. She's in her late 20s and has mm -hmm. plenty of caps with the national team and plenty of pro experience. I just think it's an interesting uh, balance there in contrast. As far as young players that stood out to me in this game in particular, I thought Sophia Smith did some good things. There weren't a ton of really inexperienced players in this lineup. I mean, you have a lot of veteran presences in the back. Alana Cook is 25. She spent plenty of time in this team. I thought she was mixed in possession in this game, but still did some good things both in this match against Canada and in this tournament with her distribution. Not perfect, but she loves to hit that diagonal from right to left with her right foot. She's looking for someone on that left side, whether it's Emily Fox or Mallory Pugh, I would argue that pass doesn't happen enough, especially to Emily Fox, who's another player, missed the last two games, I believe, for the U.S. before the final, being in COVID protocols. She's another player that generally stood out to me in a positive way. I don't think she was involved nearly enough in the attack, but I also don't really think that was her fault. It seemed to me that the U.S. had almost no interest in playing through her or playing with her on that left side. Instead, they much prefer to play through Lindsey Horan and Mallory Pugh and just play long balls into the attack and basically bypass Fox on the left. But in the moment she had on the ball, I thought she looked pretty comfortable occupying the half space. She was comfortable getting higher and wider on that left side. I think she's a good player. Physical, technical. I really enjoyed what I saw from her. I wish we would have seen more. And then, of course, you have the other players we've already talked about. Some Gurma comes off the bench in this game. You have Ashley Sanchez, who I thought was just a bright light throughout this entire tournament. Lots of, of talented youngsters. I wish we would have gotten to see more of them in this tournament, but I, I don't really fault Blacko Andonofsky for that a ton. I think he's just in a very different and maybe more realistic situation than some of us on the outside. 
After the Costa Rica game, Alex Morgan had a quote that, that did the rounds, or at least part of it did the rounds. She said, the way that Vladka wants us to play, it's different every game. That was the one that sort of got pulled out and treated in isolation. The rest of the quote finishes, it depends on a four-back or a five-back, the way they that they pressure inside or outside, the spaces they give, whether it's a high line or a low line, we faced different challenges each game. The point there being, you adapt to your opponent, you play into their weaknesses, and you sort of uh, attempt to minimize their strengths. And I think that all makes a lot of sense, especially when you have the talent that the U.S. Women's National Team does. It does, in my mind, then lend itself to having mixed approaches. I think you have to to drill down on what you want to do if you want your team to play a certain way. Uh, there was uh, the video yesterday circulating of Eric Ten Hag uh, cursing at David De Gea pretty loudly for kicking long because he wants his team to build out of the back. And I think if you are sort of trying to do a couple different things in a fairly short time frame, I think you're going to end up getting a sort of mixed bag approach. And I do think that goes some way towards explaining this result against Canada. Because again, and I'm trying not to go straight in the negative because that feels unfair and unjustified. It's a team that was very good that won all five games, didn't concede a goal, hasn't conceded a goal in a CONCACAF competition since like 2010, I want to say, which is a sign of how good the United States is. But it did seem like there were differing approaches at different times in this game. And ultimately, the U.S. sort of went a bit direct in the second half and were able to get the result accordingly. Joe, am I being unfair or did you see that sort of uh, multiple personality approach in this game? Oh, you can you can totally see this desire sort of to have the ball and dominate games, but the U.S. doesn't really treat the ball like they want to have the ball. That's That's been the constant yeah. dichotomy and, and the constant issue in my mind for the U.S. under Vlatko Andonovsky. And it's not unfair to dive into that, right? This is a classic things-can-be-two-things situation. You can have this idea that the U.S. is still dominant in CONCACAF, and they are. And that's a really good thing as you're watching this U.S. team. If you're a part of the U.S. women's national team, you get the the result you wanted against a team that beat you in the Olympic semifinals last year when you weren't at your best. And, and you can still not be at your best now, but still be the best team in CONCACAF. And that's pretty clearly where this U.S. women's national team is right now. They finished as the only undefeated team in this tournament. They beat the only other undefeated team in the tournament heading into the final, and they beat them pretty handily. I mean, the U.S. really was not threatened all that much in that game against Canada, who is, again, the second best team in this region. So that is true. And there's plenty of things to like about this U.S. team. The depth in the attack, the depth in the midfield, at least at the number eight spots, some promising players who don't have as much experience, like Naomi Gurma and Emily Fox breaking into the back line, Casey Murphy maybe being a go-to goalkeeper for this team at some point down the road, although we don't really know what that looks like. All of that can be true. It is also fair to say that the U.S. is is a weird team to watch when they have the ball because it feels like they just are, are playing so far below their full potential. And in CONCACAF, they don't need to play to their full potential to get results. I think Canada was really the only team that was ever going to test the U.S. in this tournament. Haiti had some good moments in the first group stage game, to be to be fair to them. But, you know, you can get by in some of these games without optimizing your attacking play and without being all that good defensively. And I do think the U.S. had some defensive issues further upfield against Canada. It just didn't turn into a lot of chances for the Canadians. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to have mixed feelings about this team. They should be and are held to a different standard than almost every other soccer team in the world because they've won everything. They have won everything, and we know they can dominate CONCACAF, so that's not really the question anymore. The question is, yes, okay, we can give credit and, and give 
praise to them for winning these games, and they should, and it's good that they did. That They checked all the boxes they needed to in terms of results in this tournament. But they're held to a different standard, and at a certain point, it is completely justified to talk about them in a larger sense, to look at how they match up with other teams and what, in a more macro way, still needs to improve to give them the best chance to, to reach their ultimate goals of winning more trophies on the international level outside of CONCACAF. Joe, do you have thoughts on how we can sort of fairly evaluate them? Because I, I think that is what I keep coming back to, is that it reminds me of when, when Pep Guardiola will say, like, ah, oh, you know, we did this wrong, we did that wrong, this wasn't good enough, and he's talking about a game in which his team won 5-0. And we all sort of roll our eyes and think, like, okay, Pep. But I think that's the mentality you have to have yeah. if you want to keep winning. You have to expect perfection, and if it's not there, you have to then sort of demand that everybody raise their game accordingly. But at the end of the day, it's difficult when... It's they're the, they're the dominant team in CONCACAF um, that they're having, I think, a harder time, at least of late scheduling friendlies or having meaningful opposition to play against. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn talked about how even like domestic tournaments don't really necessarily prepare them. You need something to be on the line talking about la- uh, the game against Canada, rather. Um and I totally understand that, but then it makes it really hard until the United States is basically playing in the Olympics or playing in the World Cup to get a fair understanding of how they stack up against some of those stronger teams. So for you, Joe, how do you sort of balance that? It's a difficult question for sure. Well, I mean, you can watch Manchester City play. Manchester mm-hmm. City. Wow, I totally butchered that. I bit my tongue really hard yesterday, Taylor. And so this oh, no. whole podcast experience has Uh-oh. been uh, has been wild so far. He's Manchester. Playing Joe's playing injured. He's I talking know. through the pain. Way to go, the hazards, Joe. The hazards of our profession, Taylor Rockwell. We live just a really <laughs> tough life. Manchester City. We can tell if Pep's team, we're just going to go with that, plays well or not against Newcastle. Maybe that's a bad example. Yeah. Against Watford. We can watch Manchester City play and engage, did they play well or not, while also acknowledging that Watford is not Manchester City. They're not Pep's team. So it's it's pretty clear in my mind really how we go about doing this. It, it is not unfair, I don't think, and if someone disagrees, they're obviously entitled to that opinion. I don't think it's unfair at all to watch the U.S. play Mexico in the final game of the group stage. Maybe we'll back up one or two and go back to the Haiti game at the first game of the group stage or Costa Rica. It doesn't matter. Let's say the U.S. is playing Costa Rica in the semifinals of this tournament. We can watch this team play, engage. You know, did they properly exert their advantage on the opposition or, or did they not? It's a pretty simple question and people can interpret and answer that question in a whole different spectrum of ways because we all see soccer differently and we all watch it for different things. But we can watch that game and say, man, did the U.S. optimize their attacking play? Are they moving the ball quickly? Are they doing the things that we associate with good teams? Are they being aggressive? Are they stepping to the ball defensively and winning it efficiently and denying goal-scoring chances to the opposition? Or are they not doing those things? We can ask those same questions against Costa Rica as we can against France or against Spain or against England. It doesn't really matter in my mind who the U.S. is playing. I think it is totally fair to just think about this in in multiple different ways at the same time to say, yeah, you got the result and and the the U.S. did get the results in this tournament and they deserve credit for that. You check the boxes that you needed to check. It's also fair to say, hey, there are still questions about this team. They didn't really optimize their attacking play in this game. They didn't really optimize their attacking play in this tournament. There is still pretty clearly room to grow because Taylor, I think if you asked Vlako Andonovsky, he would say there's room to grow. He already said it in this tournament. And how concerned or not concerned we are by that's a whole different discussion point. But Vlaco said, yeah, we're not ready to play in the World Cup tomorrow. We need, we need some more time. And he's going to get that time. The question for us is, as we watch this team between now and then and then at the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, is, is this team good enough? Are they, uh, did they improve? Are they capable of playing their best soccer against the best teams in the world? We don't know that question, but we can have some pretty informed guesses as to how the team looks right now. 
based off of what we've seen. All right, let's have that conversation then. Let's take a quick break, then we'll come back to talk about what we learned, positive and negative, from this tournament, talk a little bit about Canada, and then talk about where we go from here. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. I'm hoping you never left. Joe, I'm guessing you didn't either, though I hope you haven't injured yourself in the brief (laughs) gap since last you spoke. Uh, But I do want to take a look at this tournament from a broader perspective. Uh, Many big names were not involved. Uh, We can run through those. We've got Julie Ertz, Sam Mewis, Katarina Macario, Kristen Press, Crystal Dunn, and Tierna Davidson, and Abby Dahlkemper. All not involved, at least most of them, if not all of them, we would expect to get looks between now and the next World Cup. So we will see some roster turnover, Joe. But that aside, or maybe we can get into that deeper in a sec. But first, what like stood out to you in the most positive way from this tournament? So for me, it really is about the attacking quality. And Taylor, you mentioned there another huge name for this U.S. team who I think would have been the starter coming into this tournament if she'd been healthy, Katarina Macario. This U.S. team has so much depth. Coming in, and I, I wrote this for Backfield yesterday. Coming into this tournament, it felt to me like the stage was set for Mallory Pugh and Sophia Smith to dominate. That was kind of the narrative coming from inside the U.S. Women's National Team camp with Vlaco again, just saying it's going to take a ton for somebody who's not Mallory Pugh or Sophia Smith to break ahead of those two players. They have so much speed. They have so much skill. And I really do believe they're two of the best attackers in the entire world right now. They've been lights out in the NWSL. And we saw bits and pieces of them being lights out in this particular tournament, but neither player scored in more than one game for the U.S. Women's National Team. So you have Mallory Pugh, who scored once against Costa Rica in the semifinals, and then you had Sophia Smith snagging a brace against Jamaica, and it was a really good brace, especially that first goal. Brilliant. And, and I think had provided, in that moment, it provided the U.S. so much of what they lacked against Haiti, with wingers actually being able to go direct. And, and even Sophia Smith herself, I thought, really struggled against Haiti. So it was good to see her back and involved and and effective against Jamaica. But really, and Taylor, I'm curious if you disagree, I don't think this was the Mallory Pugh or the Sophia Smith show for the U.S. Women's National Team. Nothing about this tournament struck me as, man, this was really their coming out party for the U.S. And maybe Mallory Pugh has already had that, given how long she's been around. It certainly wasn't Sophia Smith's breakout tournament for the U.S. Women's National Team. Instead, I think they had some solid performances that contributed to wins. But basically it was, oh my goodness, it was a realization for me of just how much quality and depth there is even outside of those two players. Alex Morgan had kind of taken a backseat, in my mind at least. Maybe other people didn't have this experience. But she'd kind of taken a backseat as the third member of that front three, given how quickly it felt like Pew and Smith were rising over the last few months and, and over the last stretch in the NWSL, and, and with the national team as well. And I think she had the best performance of, of any of those players at the tournament. Then you look back into the depth chart a little bit, 
Mitch Purse, I thought, was really good and active and effective on the right wing for the U.S. in this tournament, dribbling at players, taking space, creating mayhem in the box. She was valuable. Trinity Rodman filling in at a number of different spots across the front line. If you want to drop back a line, maybe you talk about Ashley Sanchez, who I, I know we're both a, a big fan of. I thought she was brilliant for large stretches of this tournament and, and really should be or is pushing for a starting spot in the midfield for the U.S., there's so much quality in this team, and I was pleasantly surprised. Not that I didn't think those players could contribute, but I just now think about how much potential there is in this group. The U.S. did this. They did all of this in this W Championship without Smith or Pew really taking a game outside of maybe the Jamaica one from Sophia Smith by the scruff of the neck. Now imagine what happens if those two players really are or are able to find that lights-out form and then you supplement them with Alex Morgan, with a healthy Katarina Macaria, with Mitch Purse, with Trinity Rodman, with quality in the midfield. I mean, that has me jacked up. And I really hope we see this team at their best because, man, there is so much quality out there in that attacking group. I'm glad you led with the attack because, for me, honestly, that was one of the ones that I come away with with more question marks than answers. Because, I know I share your thoughts on Pew and Smith. I thought they both had moments when when you're reminded oh yeah these are world-class players but they also had moments when they dribbled straight into defenders or had a heavy touch of bounds or failed to take some pretty clear-cut opportunities I think both had pretty strong chances to score in that game against Canada and failed to take them so I think and like I, I had the exact same thought about Alex Morgan as you did that like I it felt like Katarina Macario like sort of that was her starting spot but she's not there Ashley Hatch I felt like was doing similar things to what we've seen Vladko ask of Katarina Macario she seemed like her, her sort of stock was rising, maybe not surpassing Alex Morgan, but Alex Morgan did seem to be the one that wasn't quite the first name on the team sheet. And after that that final, I'm still not sure if she is, but I think I have more confidence in her. I, I think that, especially with that penalty, just how calmly she dispatches it in a moment that is highly pressurized and does matter for a number of different reasons that she takes it and takes it well stands out because Sophia Smith and Mallory Pugh didn't take their chances so well. So I share your enthusiasm for the kind of depth that is there. I think it's just also, it goes back to the same issue we've been talking about. You have this team that is so talented and so good, but when everybody is so talented and so good, it becomes difficult to differentiate. And so you end up with this like, yeah, they're really good and they're better than probably any other player on on most other women's national teams, but are they the best players on the team? I'm not sure. So I think that is, strangely though, still to me, still a positive, that they're very good, but we still have some debate about who should yeah. start, who else should get minutes. It leaves it open, and I think that's what we want for the next year, is figuring out who exactly does what and who does it the best. And you could look at all of this, Taylor, from the negative perspective, too, of, man, this was supposed to be Mallory Pugh and Sophia Smith's Mm -hmm. tournament, and it it really wasn't. You could look at it from that perspective, but for me, it just feels so short-sighted to think about it that way. It feels like, okay, there is this swell of attacking talent for the U.S. team that that not many teams in the world can match. It's a really good group. I think a better group than the one that Blacko took the, to the Olympics a year ago, partially made better by the time between the Olympics and, and now. But maybe even there are players that, that could have contributed at the Olympics. There's so much ability in that group between the midfielders and the attackers. It's hard for me to take many negatives away because it also feels to me, Taylor, like a lot of the attacking questions around this team are less individual and more macro and more tactical, right? I mean, I have a hard time putting a lot of blame on, uh, let's pick any player at random, Ashley Sanchez, (laughs) if we think back to that, to that, shoot, was that Costa Rica or Mexico? It was, I think it was Mexico, where Ashley Sanchez starts and she's basically high as like a, 
a second forward in that game, and, and Lindsey oh, Horan yeah. and Lindsey Sullivan are deep, and the possession spacing was weird. And I, we talked about that, right? Taylor, correct me if I'm wrong. It felt like that, that was an instruction from Vlatko for Ashley Sanchez to stay high. It felt like it was an instruction from Blacko for Lindsey Horan to stay deeper yeah. and yeah. for them to play direct and for them to play balls over the top. I don't really put that on the players. Maybe they could have done a better job of problem solving, but it, it feels like I'd be very surprised if those weren't tactical details that were covered before the game and they were direct instructions for, the, for that particular positioning from those particular players. So I don't really put a lot of the attacking uh, lack, a lot of the, the how, how, how in sync this U.S. team has looked out of sync. That's the one I'm looking for. That was brutal, man, for everybody yeah, involved. But yeah, I, I don't put that that lack of of cohesion really on the players. I put that more on, on the coach and, and on the tactics. So, yeah, I, I still am feeling really positive about this team from an attacking perspective, at least in terms of personnel. I kind of forgot about the, like, weird 4-2-1-3 against Mexico. Yeah. But you're right. That was... Roughly the shape they went with. Uh, I, I share, again, your sort of enthusiasm for the attack, but I think it's also okay to have those questions because yep, it gives totally. us things to pay attention to as we go. I think I'm I'm more enthusiastic about the midfield and the defense, uh, if I'm being honest, because we've already talked about Ashley Sanchez plenty, but I think she and Rose Lavelle together as like like dual number eights who are both basically number tens and can combine between the two of them through the middle but I think they can keep the ball moving they can find the little gaps and thread the needle really really well I think that gives the United States a different look against teams that are going to sit deep that are going to bunker I think you have two talents there who can unlock a defense you throw Katarina Macario in there and I feel like you could just have passing triangles all over the place Still some concern about what we're doing at defensive midfield. We saw Andy Sullivan there. We saw Lindsey Horan there. We saw Christy Mewis stepping into that spot. We would assume Julie Ertz, when she comes back, if she comes back, uh, that she will get some looks there. Maybe Sam Mewis, too. But I think, again, that's one where it's okay to sort of know what we don't know. Or, or like, it's better to know what, what you... How do I phrase this? It's better <laughs> to know you. what you need to work on than not know what you don't know. There we go. M- multiple tautologies across the board. Uh, yeah, so I think knowing that, like, eh, that's one that we're still not quite sure how we want to play and who fits the best there, uh, that is a thing that actually gives me more confidence. And I think a large amount of that is because, ultimately, the defense still looks pretty strong to me. We've talked about the center backs that weren't there, uh, the center backs that were, Becky Sauerbrunn, but then Alana Cook and Naomi Gurma. I thought all uh, had fine to strong tournaments and that's what you need from a center back I thought the goalkeeper issue I know it's one that was hotly contested on Paramount Plus in the coverage of who should have started ultimately to me it's which very good goalkeeper is not going to have to do a bunch of work in the CONCACAF championship and that is kind of how that played out uh the fullback you've already talked about Emily Fox on the left Sofia Huerta on the right uh it's a confusing one, and not least because, Joe, you're absolutely right. If you asked me how old is Sofia Huerta, I would have said 24. Uh, shocking to learn that she's 29. So yeah. uh, I think you're right. that That is a strange way we look at newbies to this team. Uh, but I think what we learned there, very good in the attack if you're trying to basically break down a team, if you know you're going to have tons of the ball. She makes a lot more sense as, as an attacking option than a solid defensive option that was on display multiple times against Canada. Uh, who, who, Joe, do you feel... If we have like a meaningful game six months from now, what would your sort of back four look like, do you think? With how much Sofia Huerta struggled defensively mm-hmm. against Canada, I would be concerned about starting her in a meaningful game against a, a quality attacking team. I, I think that is that was pretty clearly the U.S.'s biggest individual weak link defensively against Canada, and that concerns me a little bit. I don't know 
how much better Kelly O'Hara would have executed in that moment. But I, I think I, I think I would go with her over Huerta just taking the hopefully a slight improvement defensively, maybe sacrificing a little bit in the attack. We saw in that same game against Canada where to play some really nice balls once she got forward. She played one right on the floor that I believe Sophia Smith almost put in, and it yep. just didn't happen for the U.S. But she has a great right foot. Uh, I, I just think I'd roll with Kelly O'Hara on the right for now unless there's someone else that's really making a push for that spot. Uh, it, it, assuming Crystal Dunn is still unavailable, I'm going with Emily Fox, and I don't really have any issues with that over on the left side. And at center back, I'm riding with Alana Cook and Gurma. I know Dahl Kemper and Davidson have a shout here, and, and I'd like to see more of them back in with this U.S. team in the future. I'm not saying they shouldn't be brought in, but I, I think I think it is getting to the point where Becky Solbrun, Becky Sauerbrunn, excuse me, is a liability defensively for this team, and and you lose out on her her experience and her ability to coach that group on the fly at a certain point becomes less valuable than defensive mobility. And I think we saw that starting to happen in this tournament. And I'm concerned about that gap between those two things and the relative value of them getting wider. So I would roll with Gurma, who I thought was brilliant. I want to see more of her in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. shirt. And then Alana Cook has good mobility, good, uh, good size to head balls away in the air, and I think has some technical ability too. I really like the the ceiling for that two, th- those two players as a partnership. I wouldn't be too bothered if we saw Del Kemper or Davidson uh, to, to get a look at them again. But certainly based off of this tournament, that's my back four. O'Hare on the right, Fox on the left, and then Gurma and Cook in the middle. I would still, I agree with you. I would still say, though, that that right back spot, I think Huerta didn't do enough for me, especially in the game against Canada, to nail it down. I was like, yep, she's the starting right back. She may well end up being the starting right back, but I think there's a lot to be worked on. Kelly O'Hara, I think, has been there, is the veteran presence, but is also another player that we might see Vladko start moving away from. So that's another area where I wouldn't be surprised if we see some new faces, get some looks, or we see some experimentation, because I think that's one that could be ripe for further development. Joe, if you're picking... I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say like new players, but like if you're picking three standout performers from this tournament that you would say are definitely going to be starters, and those can be the big names like Rose Lavelle, who would you say you feel most comfortable from that game against Canada starting the first game of the World Cup? I think Rose Lavelle is certainly one of those players. She is the first number eight on my depth chart right now, and it's it's maybe not that close. I think she put a, a little bit of a distance between herself and Lindsay Horan in this tournament. Maybe that's just my bias because I think Rose Lavelle is a better and, and more complete player, at least in terms of what the U.S. want to do. So Rose Lavelle is certainly one of those players. I think Alana Cook is probably the second, or at least in that top three. I have a hard time seeing her go anywhere after how important she's been to the national team recently under Vlatko. And then the third is still Mallory Pugh. I think she is probably the first winger in, in the first... It, it, it's difficult to say without Katarina Macario being involved, but but at least without her involved, I think she's probably still the first name in Vlaco's attacking line. Her movement in behind is so good. She is so quick on on that left side, making some of those diagonal runs from left to inside, working and combining with whoever the left sided center mid is on that on on her wing working to find space and to move and she's dangerous with the ball at her feet. We didn't see the best of her in this tournament, but for me, she is still very high up on this list. I feel good about those players. I don't, Taylor, just quickly to go back to the number six. That, I, I think, is the biggest positional question mark in the pool right now. And I agree, it's not the end of the world. I'm not saying we should burn the house down. But as far as who's going to be playing at this position and what are our options, I think that is the area that it is the least clear right now, again, based on this tournament. I don't think Andy Sullivan had a very good tournament. I don't think her distribution was good. 
She didn't look totally aware of her surroundings as the ball was coming towards her in central midfield. There's a number of different clips. I put out one on uh, on Twitter yesterday. There's a number of different clips where she is just getting the ball, and it either takes her too long to settle, or she just doesn't see someone coming up on her blind side, and she loses possession in a bad spot for the U.S. There was a little bit too much of that. And, and you can kind of get away with uh, a number six that isn't great on the ball. We see that in teams all over the world. Leicester with Conte. They, they just rolled with that because they didn't really need Conte to be great on the ball. But then you see him go and play with Chelsea, and he's a little bit more limited because he, he isn't as good at receiving and playing line-breaking passes, at least from deeper areas. You can get away with using a six that isn't as good in possession if that six is just a, a nightmare, a terrier defensively. And Sullivan had some good defensive moments down in Mexico, but I, I don't think she showed the consistency or maybe even the range to make up for her issues on the ball. So that, that's kind of my explanation for why I don't think Sullivan had a great tournament and why I'm not so sure she's the right fit for this U.S. team. She's going to be involved down the road. I'm, I'm quite sure of that. But maybe you go and give Christy Mewis a longer look. Maybe you go into the NWSL and you look for someone. Maybe you look outside of the NWSL, whatever that looks like. I think you evaluate the talent pool. There's a lot of young talented central midfielders in the NWSL right now who are eligible for this team that I think it makes sense to start looking for and, and actually giving runouts to over the next few months, starting in those September friendlies against Nigeria. Agreed. And I think that's where, as we look ahead, where U.S. fans are probably going to have to have some patience. I would assume that in the in the friendlies to come, the United States will still get results, will still score goals, will still be fine. But I think we're going to need to see the experimentation from a chemistry and like building a solid recipe standpoint that if you have different ingredients from like I don't know different backgrounds all thrown together you might get a good meal but you ultimately might get this weird mishmash of things that doesn't quite work as well as it could have and so I think what we'll need to see is uh, like as absurd for me as like maybe it's Mallory Pugh and Sophia Smith I'm not saying Vladka would actually do this but like putting them on touch limits so then they have to get the ball like move it uh, more quickly maybe it's Andy Sullivan then has to try to play a little bit differently but I think what we might see is just a little bit of tweaking as we go to try to get the team playing the same sort of harmonious style because I think ultimately if there is a breakdown in oh, that's not quite working or we're not quite sure how to play that way I think the individual ability of the United States is still so strong that you can sort of make up for it by having so Sophia Smith just dust somebody or Mallory Pugh dust somebody and that works against limited opposition I don't know if it works against teams in a World Cup when everybody is theoretically much stronger and much more ready to go so I think that's the type of experimentation I look forward to between now and the start of the next World Cup Joe let's take one more break let's talk a little bit about Canada and a little bit more about where the U.S. goes from here this episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Joe, we have not spent too much time on Canada, who I think deserve it because, number one, they are the second best team in CONCACAF, and I would assume the team that is going to continue to rival the United States for that top spot for a good long while. But it's also a Canada team that heading into this one, it's weird to see that I think some of the coverage was about how they're struggling, they don't know their identity, they're getting older. But for me, coming out of the Arnold Clark Cup, when they draw against England, they beat Germany, they narrowly lose to a very good Spain team that still had all of its best players. It feels like that's a team that is building momentum, especially after knocking the U.S. out of the Olympics. I think they themselves are continuing to kind of develop and build out their style. I think against the United States, we saw that, and I think it's to their credit. Canada fans probably won't agree with me, but I think it's to their credit that they they tried to kind of go at the United States. I think that was to their detriment at times. I think they struggled when they were trying to transition back to defense because against the United States, historically, I feel like they've been better when they stay deep, they frustrated, they hit on the break, and they would get that sort of either uh, scrappy counterattacking goal or a penalty, as it was in the Olympics. I think they tried to be more open, they tried to be expansive, but I think that sort of played into the U.S.'s hands because then it's an open game that relies on technical ability. I think the U.S. is always going to be okay with that, but I think it also means the United States had a little bit too much time on the ball, time to kind of pick out their opportunities and create from it. And so I think with that said, Canada trying to do something different. It's basically like, okay, we know we can play this way and possibly get a result, but we want to try to play this way and see what happens. And ultimately what happened was that they lost, but they still have an opportunity to go to the Olympics. But I think all in all, a I guess for me, a stronger tournament for Canada than I've I feel like I've seen from some of the coverage about that team. This is a, a really strong team. I mean, this team, let's not forget beat the U.S. in Tokyo a year ago and, and knocked the U.S. out of the Olympics while sent them to the third-place game where they would win a bronze medal and went on to win the whole darn thing. So this is a, yeah, a Canadian team that has... Out, I think. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, <laughs> Thank no, no, you for well, clarifying that, Joe. Yeah, I say knocked out because anytime the U.S. doesn't win the gold, it feels like they've been eliminated. Well, and, and they have, right? I mean, a third hmm, yeah. the Olympics is a weird soccer tournament because the Olympics gives you a medal for winning third. And I know <laughs> there's a third-place game in the World Cup, but no one cares about that game right so it's a weird thing I get you Taylor this Canada team has a a ton of quality there's a lot to like and I think a lot to build on for this Canadian team there's a lot of players that are in their primes maybe some that are a little past their primes but there's talent in this group there's talent in this team and Canada's a a real force I think and will continue to be a force in CONCACAF and maybe even a little bit in in a wider sense on the global stage there's a lot to like about this team Prince, again, was just brilliant against the U.S., driving mm-hmm. at Sofia Huerta. She was really hard to stop. I'm a big fan of Jesse Fleming's game in midfield, driving forward into the attack. I talked about Janine Becky before this game when we were looking ahead to this one a little bit, answering some questions that listeners had submitted. There's real players here. And I think, Taylor, to go back to your thoughts about how Canada approached this game, I'm with you. I think, in hindsight, it's 2020 here. But when you're a team looking to play the U.S., you have to think long and hard about how much you really value your individual identity for that particular game. Because there's no question about Canada wanting to be a more open team, wanting to control the ball. And they were always going to do those things against Trinidad and Tobago, against whoever else they're playing right along the way, against Jamaica in the semifinals, whatever that looks like. They were always going to dominate those games with the ball and have a big talent advantage. That's just the reality right now. But when you come up against the U.S. after watching the film of all their games, after after knowing them and playing against them in the past at things like the Olympics, 
you kind of know, okay, this team has attacking talent that can beat us in transition, but when teams seem to sit deep against the U.S. and play a well-executed block and then look to attack in space and be dynamic in those moments, the U.S. is is beatable. And that's that's where this team is right now. That's I think Vlakovic's number one priority is to make them more capable of breaking teams down that do decide to sit deeper. I think Canada would have had a lot more success if they had tried to sit a little deeper. I know that goes against what they've done earlier in this tournament and I think what they would like to do ideally on a game-by-game basis. But man, it is just... This this game is an interesting case study for me. For good teams that have talent of what happens if you extend and don't execute your attacking moments as well and don't really contain the U.S. in transition, you're you're going to lose games. That's That's just how this works when the U.S. is this good on the break and they have this much attacking talent. But sitting deep, I think, would have been a much more useful and effective strategy for Canada. It would have made this a, a much less fun game. And I do think this game was really fun. A lot of entertaining moments, good back and forth play. It was a great game. But an interesting case study for the future, maybe as teams look at how they should approach or, or maybe best could approach playing against the United States. Any thoughts from you, Joe, on what they should do, Bev Priestman should do when it comes to Christine Sinclair? Uh, watching this game, it seemed like she was, I, I thought she was a very instrumental player for Canada, which is an obvious thing to say about a player who's their captain and has over 300 appearances. But it felt like she was causing problems in that she was moving around and not just staying central, not just being the kind of target, but instead would drop deep or would show up out wide. And it seemed like was either having joy on the ball or at the very least was pulling U.S. midfielders with her and opening up space for other players. So... I felt like she did a lot of positive things at the same time. If you want to play open, expansive, attacking football that requires rapid transitions to attack, but then also transitions back into defense, I don't know how much that suits a player who is uh, 39, just turned 39 in June, will be 40 if uh, she's still uh, getting ready for that 2023 World Cup. It's strange to think of Canada without Christine Sinclair, but at the same time, with some of the talent you've already mentioned, and some of the young talent as well, with Jordan Heidema, only 21, Julia Grosso, who I believe was the player of the tournament, also 21 years old, uh, Riviere, 21. It's a consistent number there for Canada. <laughs> There's plenty of youth there, so I guess I remain uh, a fan of Christine Sinclair, but I'm not sure she is the way forward for Canada. Yep, totally with you, Taylor. I, I think you can still use Christine Sinclair. You can still have her around the team. You can still have her playing games. But it seems to me that maybe her time as a starter is getting close to being done if it's not already over. I think she brings a ton of value and could be a really useful player for minute 60 to minute 90. And, and she was still doing some really valuable things against the U.S. from minute one. But I think there would be value in Canada as they try to play a more up-tempo kind of way to going with Heidema or going with someone else up top or changing the approach slightly to then bring Christine Sinclair off the bench and use her aerial ability, use her work to hold up the ball, use her work to connect play and have her do her thing. But maybe you want that in a in, in more of a late game situation rather than from the start to set the tone. I don't know what that looks like. And I think she can still do a lot of really important things for Canada. It's not a mistake in my mind to start her every game, but you're getting closer and closer, like like with Becky Sauerbrunn, where the disadvantages and some of the challenges that are presented by carrying a player in that squad, even with all the things that they can do to help you, you're getting to the point where those things aren't really aligned or in your favor anymore. You're kind of flipping the opposite way. So we shall see how Canada continue to evolve, but obviously we're going to be a bit more focused on what the United States does. Uh, Joe, let's spend some time talking about that. I have a very ridiculous idea for what the U.S. could do if they wanted to sort of uh, 
figure out what works best for them between now and the World Cup. All right, here we go. So we know, or we assume that it will be a challenge to get all of the many names into one camp. Because even with all the names that we've mentioned not being there, there's still plenty of other young players who I think probably deserve some looks or will deserve some looks as the season goes on. We've got the squad we've already had. So you've got a ton of players. I don't know how you fit 40 or 50 people into one camp. At the same time, we know it's also going to be difficult to schedule uh, meaningful games against strong opponents. Looking back at 2022, they had, I think, Iceland, who were number 17, New Zealand at number 22. Outside of that, not a ton of like top-tier opposition, a lot of that being because teams uh, chose to stay and do their own tournaments in February. So rather than come for the She Believes, I think there were three different European competitions uh, for teams, one of which Canada participated in. Canada was happy to go abroad. The U.S. doesn't really do that. They tried to schedule game in April against uh, a top-ranked Asian side, but that was called off due to COVID and quarantine restrictions. So we assume that they will have uh, some more, uh, I guess, like str- strong opposition come September, October. I think World Cup qualifying in Europe could make that a slight challenge as well. All that to say, could be tough to find uh, strong opposition, could be tough to get everybody into one camp. Joe, I think we should take Vlatko. I think we should take Megan Rapino. I think we should take Becky Sauerbrunn and have a draft. And I think yes. the three of them should uh, just rotate snake draft style. And each of them ends up with a team of maybe 23 players. And then we just have a, a an inter-US tournament that really matters. I don't know how it really matters. <laughs> I don't know how we evaluate it fairly. But I almost think that's kind of what's needed is sort of, first of all, that competition and ruthlessness seems to have worked for the US in the past. But also... We're just going to get so many, I, I almost feel like nitpicking as we go forward. I'm like, oh, it could be here, it could be here, it might be this, this isn't quite working. And I just like the idea of three different people with three different managerial approaches. And I'm assuming that Vlatko is sort of like the the neutral in the middle. Becky Sauerbrunn is on one side, Megan Rapino on the other, and how they would approach these things. I feel like Megan Rapino's teams would be like all out attacking. Becky Sauerbrunn's would be more practical. <laughs> uh, so th- that that's my solution, Joe, is an inner U.S. or intra-U.S. Uh, tournament. Taylor, I'm down. What if, I mean, I'm here for that, and I think we should start working on it immediately, yep. mm-hmm. working on the logistics and contacting all, all three of those people who we, of course, know intimately and have their contact information. I think we should do that, but maybe while we do that, we should also <laughs> do an episode down the road where you and I just draft this team, yep. and then we uh, we get to argue about who we think is better. Maybe we, we ask Graham. We probably aren't going to ask Ryan, but maybe we ask Graham what he thinks, and, and we'll ask also the folks that are listening what they think and maybe take some sort of a vote. There, there's so much ability in this group. I think you could make maybe not two full 23-player rosters. I mean, you, you yeah. could. You're, you're diving down fairly deep at that point, but we could still draft starting that, lineups you know, and, right. and five subs between the yeah. two of us and have some really strong teams. And I think it would also give us some insight into which players that we value and which players we think are, are maybe weak links and we disagree and things we agree on as well. I think it'd be fun. Uh, you're right, because we don't need. Because if the point is to see which team is is the best, you don't really need 23. You need. But that wasn't the yeah. point of your exercise, really. That's the point no, of my adapted exercise. <laughs> no, but I like it because then 11 plus five subs. Now we're at 16. Then sure. you only need 48 players, and it feels like there are definitely 48 players when you look at the entire pool that could challenge for a spot on that roster. So there we go, Joe. All right, you, you've solved it. Uh, I like that. I like the idea of those teams. Also, one team is possession oriented. One team is like route one oriented. One team tries to 
split the difference or tries to be like the high pressing intensity team. And then you see who does what best. Uh, those experiments aside, we know we're going to be getting uh, some meaningful opposition. I guess not meaningful because it will still be friendlies, but some stronger opposition. I think we've got uh, Nigeria. Is that correct? We're playing yeah, them in two September. games, two games against Nigeria in mm-hmm. September. So there will be stronger opposition. Joe, if there were a team from what you've seen of the Euros so far that you would most like to see the U.S. play, I mean, my guess would be it's England or Germany, but is there somebody else that you think could be uh, a good one for the United States? I mean, I think most of the teams that are still involved at this stage of the competition would be valuable. England, I think, test teams in so many different ways. They're closer to the middle of the tactical spectrum than a team like Spain, who is really far to one side. I think it would be useful to see the U.S. play Spain again. They did that. At some point in the last few years, I can't remember when it was now, but I think it was it be, the She Believes. Yeah, it was. It yeah. was, yeah. So I would like to see that game as well, but England, I think, would be my first choice. Germany would be in a, in a similar spot. France as well, I think, are involved in that group. I mean, we, we've talked about this before. I, I just want to continue to impress upon people how important I think it is that the U.S. play, and I'm not alone in this. This is a pretty logical thought. It's important for the U.S. to be playing good teams, and it's getting harder and harder to find teams to play with how congested the European calendar in particular is getting on the international level. That's a challenge for CONCACAF. It's a challenge for the U.S., a logistical one, to figure out how they break into that cycle, how they break into that rhythm and start to play good teams it's really difficult. I sympathize with the decision makers. I sympathize with the schedule makers. I don't know how you go about doing this, but just one of my other takeaways from this tournament is the U.S. needs to test itself against better teams. We haven't seen them do that since the Olympics. It was underperforming at the Olympics against good teams, a lot of playing mostly not good teams between last summer and this summer, and then smashing everybody and then still beating Canada, the, the, really the one good team that you played in this competition. It's just not enough. It's not enough to test this team. It's not enough, I think, for Vlad Kondinovsky to feel confident. I'd be feeling a lot more confident about this group going forward against the best in the world if they had looked really cohesive on the ball and looked really cohesive defensively. I think there were some issues there too, especially with the mid-block that they pulled out in this tournament. We saw a lot of a 4-4-2 mid-block, especially against Canada, and the U.S. could not figure out how to defend in that shape and were getting bypassed over and over again in midfield. That's an issue, and I I wish we saw a more cohesive and collective performance from the U.S., generally speaking, at the W Championship. We didn't. And that puts even more importance on the U.S. scheduling some some good teams and playing good soccer against those good teams ahead of the World Cup. So hopefully there can be some sort of creative solution to those issues as we look forward. Uh, agree with everything you said there, Joe. I think if we're if you're giving me the opportunity to schedule like a she believes competition against three European teams, I think I'm going England because Graham and I were talking about them yesterday. I think they're the the best sort of all round team. That was his phrasing for England when it comes to these Euros. So I think they present a formidable formidable opponent in a number of different ways. I would throw Sweden in there as being a very disciplined and organized team that still has plenty of individual talent to cause problems. And then the outlier, I think, would be Austria, because they have been sort of the disruptors thus far. I did not expect them to make it out of their group, and they have uh, by really taking the games in Norway and making them uncomfortable. And I think an Austria team that maybe isn't overawed by the occasion, but is instead just pressing high, playing physical, trying to win that ball, and then trying to go straight to goal as quickly as they can, and has some... uh, like a lethal approach to set pieces, I think would be another really good opponent for the U.S. But I would love to see them schedule games against different types of teams who play different styles so that there is just more awareness of what the United States needs to do in those situations. Ultimately, I think if the United States is sort of 
drilling down on playing faster, keeping the ball moving with quick, simple passing to get it into more dangerous positions and then varying the attack as opposed to just looking for those crosses into the box or just looking for shots from distance. I think that makes them a much more difficult team to face uh, once we get to the World Cup. So I think a a varied approach to opponents and continuing to experiment, not just in the positions of uncertainty like right back like the number six but I think just making sure that we aren't just defaulting to yep it's Sophia Smith and Mallory Pugh that's it that's how it's going to be regardless of what Trinity Rodman does for the rest of the season or when she gets some looks for the U.S. or Kristen Press if she's able to come back to full fitness maybe she gets some looks there just to keep things keep that competition going I think that's the thing that has always served the United States well is that that level of competition within the team makes it so that they can basically always handle opponents who aren't quite able to provide that same level of competition. And I don't even mean from a technical side. I mean that if you're competing against somebody day in and day out, that's going to build that relationship, but it's also going to build that strength of competition. And I think that's only for the best for the U.S. Uh, Maybe not for the friendship levels, but at least for the competition levels. Taylor, I I went down, I was looking for stuff on Twitter yesterday, and I found some TikToks from U.S. Women's National Team players. Mm -hmm. And some of them are so funny. I I, I think (laughs) there's so much... There, there's so much personality in this team. Yeah. I hope they're doing okay on a friendship level. But I do think that competition you're talking about serves this team well. And I, I cannot see, I cannot possibly see that going away anytime soon with how many quality players are in this team. Everyone's pushing for minutes. And a lot of players deserve minutes. I don't envy Vlako Andonovsky's job. In some ways, I think he has the hardest job, one of the hardest jobs in soccer, choosing between those players and, and balancing that locker room. It's very, very difficult. We know that from past coaches and, and past people that have been involved. It's not easy to do. My one wish list, my one thing on my wish list, the main thing, other than sorting out maybe the number six spot I I put second on this list, is just wanting to see a more cohesive and unified and effective tactical approach from the U.S. I, I still think they're struggling in that area. We've seen how much damage they can do without that. We've seen them dominate this region. We've seen them even make it pretty far in the Olympics and hang in there against good teams over there in Japan. We've seen them do that. I just can't help but think about how much better this team could be, how much more room there is for them to grow and just dominate games. They're not going to win every game. They might even go into a World Cup, play really well, and lose a final. That's just the reality of soccer, especially in a knockout tournament. I'm not asking for them to be perfect, but I I see so much room for them to grow. Taylor, I know you do too. We've talked about it before. I see this from other folks out there as well on Twitter or wherever this is. There's room for them to grow. It's pretty clear when you watch this team for all the reasons we've talked about on this episode and past USWNT episodes, there's room. And even if the U.S. just breaks halfway closer to their ceiling, man, this team would be consistently fun to watch and consistently dangerous in a way that I just don't think they are right now. I would love to see them get to that level. I think they can. It's not rocket science. It's not impossible. There's room for them to grow and time for them to do that. But I really hope we see it ahead of the World Cup, which, again, as we said earlier, starts a year from today. It's possible. I just I really want it to happen. Yeah, and I, and I think that is what we need to see because the best teams in the world, and this is my final point on this team, the best teams in the world, I think, are able to adjust what they're doing not even at halftime, but in-game, mid-game, to what the opponent is doing to nullify their threats. And so the United States, when they do that, I think they're able to do it eventually. And I think a lot of the team is able to do it very quickly. But even Alex Morgan, without like naming names, said, yeah, there's a couple of players who I think don't quite know what's like like what their responsibilities are in certain situations. And to me, that speaks to a larger issue of 
oh, this team that we expected to bunker is actually high pressing, uh, but we're still in a game plan of we can sort of slowly progress the ball upfield. Now we're being high pressed. That won't work. So we've got to change it up. We're going to try to play one and two touch passing. But I think for some players, the way that sort of uh, adjusts is to I'm going to beat somebody for pace or I'm going to try to make some more like individualized runs. And I don't and I think if you have those different identities happening simultaneously, you're going to have that breakdown. You're going to have that attack stall and it takes more instruction uh, from the coach or from the veterans at stoppages to figure things out. And I would love to see the United States just be just be able to kind of flip a switch uh, and and adjust what they're doing on the fly. That is an incredibly difficult thing. You're correct. It's not rocket science, but it is still a big challenge. But it's something that I think the best teams in the world, even at the international level, are, are capable of. Certainly easier at club, but I think national teams can do it. And I think the United States should well be able to do so yeah and and when I talk about it not being rocket science I'm not saying that and I I know you're not saying this Taylor but I just want to be clear I'm not saying that it isn't difficult. I'm not saying it's it's not difficult to play good oh, no, soccer on the international level. It's not rocket science. <laughs> well, that I, is I, I know, that I'm right. I'm 100 right yeah. about that. It is. Yeah. I think there are just some very clear things the U.S. can do to be more efficient with the ball. Stop crossing so much. And there were some good games in this tournament where they didn't cross as much. You have uh, the Jamaica game, which I thought was a lot better. Stretches against Costa Rica, which I thought was a lot better. Canada, there were some good moments, but it was a different challenge for the U.S. team without as many opportunities to cross. You have that. And then, and then stop playing quite as direct in possession. You're bypassing. You end up bypassing and minimizing the touches that your stars get on the ball. And that just, to me, feels weird and strange. There's benefits to doing that. It's not wrong to do those things all the time. But just adding a little more of attacking diversity feels super doable for this team. And, and, and that, I think, is a, a really easy and achievable thing for this group to do. Let the players play a little bit. Let Rose Lavelle and Ashley Sanchez and Lindsey Horan and Mallory Pugh and Alec, whoever is involved, let them play. Let them combine. Let them work together and play off of each other instead of just really skipping all of those opportunities by playing over the top and then just pumping in cross after cross when you get to the final third. That's the kind of stuff that I think is just so, the U.S. is so close to being able to do because pretty much every team's close to being able to do that. And, and I, I just hope we see it. So, okay, again, tactical rant over. I'm done. I I appreciate your tactical rants always, Joe. I look forward to more of them as we continue to talk about this U.S. women's national team as we get ready for that World Cup next summer. Still strange to me that it's a year away, not in terms of like, wow, it's only a year away, more so that it starts in late July. That seems odd to me. That seems outside of the normal. <laughs> Usually they're in June, but I'm, I'm assuming it's COVID scheduling. Who knows anymore? Uh, but Joe, between now and then, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the U.S. plenty. But for now, thank you so much uh, for talking with me about them today. I look forward to doing some listener questions and some Soccer 101 with you tomorrow. Yeah, right back at you, Taylor. It is, it is wild to think that there are two World Cups in the next 16 months. That is, I mean, I know that's kind of how it works where you get one with inside of a year, but it feels like they're coming up very, very quick. Not, sorry, that's totally wrong. There's two World Cups by the time November starts to July. So forget the 16-month thing I just said. Yeah. I am uh, in slight panic mode thinking about that, but mm-hmm. it's going to be great, Taylor. It's going to be great. Is it going to be weird when the United States wins two World Cups in eight months? Do you think nah, that's that'll be normal? Be yeah, it's, okay. I mean that's just the expectation, really. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. That's the <laughs> expectation. Let's hope they're both able to execute. Joe Lowry, thank you again. Listeners, thank you all so much for sticking with us. We will talk to you all again very soon. Mm-hmm.